Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm John Kelly, Puck's co-founder, filling in for Peter Hamby. It's Monday, June 20th, and we're celebrating Juneteenth. I hope that you're enjoying this federal holiday and using the time off to reflect on its meaning and all the profound work we need to do to combat racial inequality in this country. For this Media Monday, I'm chatting with Dylan Byers, whose reporting and insights we're always stealing on the show. Dylan and I talk about what's really going on inside CNN as the lick takes hold and what to expect from Joe Kahn, the new executive editor at the New York Times, who started his first day in his big job last week. Welcome to Media Monday. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily. You may recognize I'm not Peter Hamby. Peter is out today, so I'm filling in. And this week, we have a very special guest. Normally, Peter and I bogart Dylan Byers reporting and act as if it's our own. But today, I'm with the man, the myth, the legend himself, Dylan Byers, live from Los Angeles. How are you doing, Dylan? I'm doing great. I'm doing really great. It's nice to be on Media Monday. You reported last week about what we were calling lictiety, this coursing fear, uh, modest fear, inside Hudson Yards that Chris Licht is marooned somewhere on the 22nd floor, the executive floor, with all these TVs on, monitoring the talent, figuring out who's too partisan, who's not centrist enough, who makes sense with his new direction, this sort of post-Zucker, post-partisan, Zaz-friendly, Malone-friendly, just the facts, ma'am, CNN. And not surprisingly, some people in there are freaked out. Instead of me acting as though I was the one collecting all the great information, I'm going to turn it over to you. Tell me, what are you hearing now inside CNN? What, what is the anxiety level like? So last week, he did a town hall, his second town hall. And it was clear that he was looking to quell some of this anxiety. And he did it in a number of ways. So if you were a CNN staffer who was anxious about layoffs, he said there would be no layoffs at CNN. If you were a CNN staffer who felt, why am I reading these reports that I'm being evaluated based on how partisan I'm being, he stressed that this has more to do with fostering respectful conversation. And that, by the way, 
this was something that wasn't just about talent. It was about the guests who came on air. And and he also said, look, we are going to call out bullshit where we see it. Bullshit being the word that he used. And he right. even said that if one side of the political spectrum is pushing more bullshit than the other side, then we're going to have to spend more time calling out that side. So I think he tried to steer the concern away from the idea that this was strictly about partisanship and reiterate that it's more about turning down the volume, turning down the heat, and having more respectful conversations. That said, he also said that he's very happy with the tone of the coverage generally. He's happy with the guests that have come on. He feels like there are guests from a broader swath of the political spectrum that might not have come on in the past. I do wonder if Jeff Zucker would take issue with that characterization. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder. Um, <laughs> I think he probably would. Yeah, I, I um, think so. <laughs> and finally... If you're somebody who is worried about uh, how much influence John Malone, uh, mm -hmm. noted powerful Warner Brothers Discovery shareholder, mentor to David Zaslav, and the one who famously said that CNN needed to get back to doing journalism. If you're a CNN staffer who's nervous about Malone's influence, Chris Licht said in a way that struck many people as sort of charming and funny, that he said he wouldn't recognize Malone if Malone was in the audience, that uh, he's never met Malone. Now, that sort of doesn't really answer the question because yeah. there's a chain of influence there. Anyway, all of that said, clearly he's aware of these anxieties. I think he's probably reading uh, our copy. And mm -hmm. I think he's trying to reassure people that they don't need to be quite so worried. Did people leave that meeting feeling reassured? I think, again, it depends on where you sit in the organization. Yeah. If you are a Jake Tapper or a Wolf Blitzer, you don't need to be worried about this. Again, the, those names that have sort of come up, the Jim Acosta's, Brian Stelter's, Brianna Keeler's, maybe, I don't know if the, if all of those anxieties have been quelled. Right, well, one thing that I've noticed, just anecdotally, and, I, and I'm not watching CNN the way I used to during the, the peak of the Trump years, but there are already subtle personnel changes at critical times, such as on primary nights, where you will see Chris Wallace, where in the past you would have seen maybe a more obstreperous anchor. You might see an Abby Phillips instead of a, a Caitlin Collins. Caitlin Collins has not been mentioned in the in the group that you uh, just referred to of, of Brian and Acosta as and Brian Keeler as being sort of virulently anti-Trump or at least uh, a sort of showboating type. But I, I wonder if she would be, you know, broadly considered in that category, whereas Abby's a much more traditionally trained journalist. I mean, she was an incredible Washington Post reporter. I don't know. I mean, I think Caitlin Collins is sort of viewed internally as as a, as a killer, as like a very mm -hmm. hardworking person with, with great potential. And my guess is that Chris Licht as producer and programmer might recognize that. A lot of these people at the end of the day are well-paid talent who are capable right. of changing tack and so if, if Jeff Zucker is there and saying, uh, my God, Trump is and, and the GOP are in contempt of truth and democracy and civility, by all means, speak out on that, then people are going to feel emboldened to do that. If the new mandate is to be more respectful and turn down the coverage and, and not be partisan, I think that there are a lot of people, including the Caitlin Collins of the world, who are capable of, of just getting back to the journalism aspect of their job. I think the issue here is, if you're Chris Licht, you are talking about trying to maintain and expand the power of the brand and the trust in the brand. And so I think the question is whether or not people are adaptable 
did some people be, gain such notoriety for the way that they behaved mm -hmm. during the Trump Zucker years that it's sort of too much for them to overcome as a branding exercise? And are they too tethered to the past in the eyes of Americans who may not be Trump people or Fox News people, but may have left CNN because they felt alienated by the tone and the tenor of the coverage? You know, you make a good point. This is a business. You know, Jeff Zucker was a former CEO of NBC Universal. He, he was the president of CNN. He, he wasn't somebody who, who worked at ProPublica. This is a business. And I think it's fascinating to watch how Brian Stelter's newsletter has modulated in the last number of months um, from being a place where you would read the, the rhetoric and diatribes of the Chris Cuomo's of the world and, and you know, and to now being much more straightforward. Don Lemon has also modulated a lot of his tone and, and become, I think, more of a uh, of a straight news person. Uh, one of the other you know interesting details of the, of last week, you, you know, just in your story too, was that Lemon asked a totally legitimate question about Biden's age and caught a ton of shit from the quote unquote online left or the or the, or the Twitter left. And I don't know if he was motivated by the new centrist edict of the network. I sort of think he wasn't. It's a totally valid and legitimate question. Yeah, and one he's made, he's he's criticized Biden in the past. Right, but it is still noticeable. We're watching something happen in midstream. I don't want to be over generous in praise here, but I think the licked edict all along was to try and change the direction of the chip slightly from the 22nd floor without being in the control room, without being incredibly hands-on. I think that, that we can point to a, a couple of signs where it, it's quite evident that, that he's doing that. And Zaslav is delivering on his cuts. He laid off another nearly a thousand people last week. It looks like he's going to get to the proposed synergies. So it, it's up and to the right for Zaslav and, and Licht is his man and, you know, get in line or get out. That's just the reality of the business there. That's absolutely right. And I think for all of the anxiety that people feel in this second guessing, I think his edict has been pretty clear, which is that in the past, if you saw an opportunity to get up on your high horse and act self-righteous about something and earn yourself a headline on media, such and such anchor goes after this or, in, in you know, tearfully, you know, whatever, don't do that anymore because the, <laughs> the, the edict is this is not about you. So I don't think that Chris Licht is saying don't have voice, but I do think he's saying you are facilitating a conversation. You are not the story yourself. And, and I think there's an argument to be made that that's probably a healthy shift for CNN. We're going to take a quick break, and then, Dylan, let's come right back and talk about our shared favorite subject, The New York Times. Welcome back. For those wondering where Peter Hamby is, I don't know. But I'm John <laughs> Kelly, the co-founder of Puck, and I'm here with Dylan, and we're talking about a place near and dear to my heart and to his. It's the New York Times, once my former stomping grounds, and, and certainly a place that, that lives in fear of the forthcoming in the room. Uh, Dylan, one of, the, one of the stories that put you on the map, like a, you know, a decade ago, was your piece when you were at Politico during the Abramson era, or yeah. uh, what that, that fight between Dean and Jill, the door was closed and Dean slammed the wall. And I remember that morning like it was yesterday. Everyone in my department was reading it first thing in the morning. By mistake, I like fat fingered my phone. I thought 
that I'd mistakenly posted it to Twitter. I turned off my phone. I was terrified. I thought, oh my God, at a place like the Times, if I had done that by mistake, someone was going to screen grab it and, and show it to Dolnik or AG and I'd get in, in deep trouble. Anyway, none of that happened. It was an incredible story. And, uh, you know, it turned out that you were early as you often are on the irreparable beef between Jill and Dean. We bring all this up because Dean's successor, Joe Kahn, finally, after a pretty methodical, almost multi-year-long succession. It started in his job as executive editor last week. I have a lot of thoughts on Khan, but I want to hear what you think are his immediate tasks moving forward and, and just to get your, your general take on the joint these days. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, the contrast between the Abramson-Bakay turnover versus the bakay Khan turnover is stark. And it's very commendable, I think, when you can have a transition of power that is so boring and unremarkable that even the headlines about like the interviews with Joe Kahn are like, there's no nothing is going to change here. And surely some things will change and, and surely leadership matters. And, and Joe Kahn is a different kind of leader than Dean Bacay. I wrote last week about a trend happening at CNN and the New York Times and the Washington Post, and I just think so-called mainstream media generally, which is there is this effort to tack back from the sort of resistance, woke temptations of journalism during the Trump years and during all of the, the political and cultural chaos that we've lived through, and to get back to something that feels accessible to a broader swath of the country. And I think mm -hmm. the challenge is going to be for all of these networks and certainly for Joe Kahn editorially is what happens in 2024 when you have a candidate who doesn't play on a level playing field in terms of any sort of adherence to facts or civility or anything like that and is willing to demonize the media. And, and how do you lead the paper through that while still maintaining a brand that is accessible, that can as CEO Meredith Coppett-Levin wants to do, expand the audience to even mm -hmm. more subscribers, I think that is going to be a real challenge for him, one among many, to be sure. It's clear that he has mm. the respect of the newsroom, or at least broad swaths of the newsroom. So, you know, I'm, I, I, think he'll, I think he'll be okay. I mean, what do you see? Do you, do you see any pitfalls or potential landmines for him in the, in the next two to, two to three years? I think he's handled this really responsibly. And I should say, I, I don't know him. My only meaningful interactions with him were when he was a minority investor in the Monkey Bar, Graydon Carter's restaurant <laughs> in the late aughts. And I was a sort of part-time magazine editor, part-time maitre d' for a very brief period of my life. And I would see him there. And I always thought he was an unbelievably distinguished, kind gentleman. Um, but a couple of things have struck me about this transition. One, first and foremost, it seemed inevitable, but I actually think that years ago it was not. I have a suspicion this is unprovable, and I'm already sort of like imagining the emails I'm going to get in a couple hours. I think that AG always envisioned Bennett in that job. Oh, sure. James Bennett. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I remember having lunch with Kara years ago, and she mentioned off, off the side of her mouth that she she and AG and Bennett were having like a, a bunch of meet and greets with like some serious heavies in Silicon Valley around that time. This is maybe 2019. And, you know, that you could suggest that that was something that was taking place because he was the opinion editor, she was an opinion columnist, and this was a sort of non-news zone. But it, to me, it seemed like a grooming process was beginning. And James obviously was an incredibly capable person. Obviously, the situation that around his departure was such that he could no longer re remain in, in the building. And I always assumed that Joe Kahn was 
an understudy to Bennett. And, and that's part of why Dean stayed so long and, and that he extended it because they, it was Bennett's to lose and, and he lost it. And that's not to besmirch Khan, who's obviously a very deeply respected, credible person. He is not a Washington creature, which will be no. notable. Uh, Dean was, yes. had been the head of the Washington Bureau. Jill was the head of the Washington Bureau. Bill Keller was not. He is the sort of forebear of the Khan pedigree, the, the longtime foreign correspondent. He looked like a foreign correspondent, one of the handsomest guys you'll ever see. I think his father had been the CEO of Chevron. And there was sort of the, the times in that era, even though I have tremendous respect for Bill, but was aloof. The era that sort of predated the um, in and around the, the Carlos Slim loan. But that's the era that I think Ben Smith has referred to as when the time when the Times was complacent, when when it was right. uh, disruptible for BuzzFeed. Not that the New York Times should be entirely Washington-focused, of course, but I think that there is a sort of Washington metabolism that, that Dean brought to the place, and, and he deserves a lot of credit for it. This is the um, save the compliment for last. So um, <laughs> uh, when I worked at the Times, I was always shocked at how it operated like the United States government. When there was a new executive editor, it was as if a new administration had taken hold and there was a new head of every federal agency. So there'd be a new national <laughs> editor, a new foreign editor, a new editor of the book of you, a new sports editor. Like it was, and and if you were so-and-so's person, if you were a Jill person, you got the job. If, if you had been a Dean person and Dean lost out to Jill as he did in that period, then you might be banished somewhere to well or car. Right. Editorial Siberia, yeah. Exactly. And, and knowing that in three years you'd come back. I mean, it was an insane, it was an insane sort of uh, way to live and do business. And to my understanding, Khan has not done that. He's led a very well-oiled editorial machine continue into existence. He's made some small hires. In fact, if I could point to anything, I'm curious if the very collegial relationship between Carolyn Ryan and Mark Lacey, his two deputies who are both in their late 50s, if that remains collegial since they're just clearly being positioned in a, in a bake-off against each other. And, you know, if Joe does this job for five or six or seven years, um, they'll both be in their early 60s, retirement age is 65 in that job. So only one of them is going to get it. I, I don't want to look too far in the future. Anything can happen. Yes, things seem quite collegial at the moment, but everyone has their ambitions and I'm sure friendships will be tested. I cover a lot of different media organizations from Disney to CNN. And most places I look, the leadership changes are really problematic and there are real struggles. And it is a testament to the times that they have managed to do this in a way that was almost not even worthy of mention. But, you know, go, what I, the, the point I was going to make about the, the coverage and, and, and Joe Kahn not being a creature of Washington, I do see a little bit of a tension in newsrooms between if you're at the New York Times and you're running the place, you probably have a very and, and you have a history as a foreign correspondent. You probably have a global understanding of the world and, and you probably take great deal of pride in the international coverage, whether that be from Ukraine or China or the Middle East, what, what have you. And there is always this pull to get back into politics. I mean, you even see it at Semaphore with with Ben Smith and Justin Smith's thing is we're launching this big global publication that's going to be for English speakers around <laughs> the world. And then lo and behold, like they're actually really launching in Washington. And that's really where they're getting their start. And they're going to do it during the course of a presidential cycle because our presidential cycles are always two years long. News organizations constantly find themselves having to return to politics and campaigns as the main event. And I think that will happen for The New York Times. And I, I, I will be interested to see how Joe Kahn balances and prioritizes political versus international coverage. 
Yeah, me too. Although I have to tell you, I, I think if anyone can do it, it will be him. He seems like a pretty uh, even-keeled person. And his distance from the Trump world and Biden world are actually probably uh, two arrows in his quiver that will that will serve him well because that, that place can get pretty haywire during a, <laughs> uh, a presidential cycle. And this may give him some remove. Um, anyway, yeah. Dylan, I got to get you out of here because I know you're about to have a, a, a big, important breakfast meeting. So I'm going to bid adieu to you and... I'll see everyone next week with our favorite buddy, Peter Hemby. (laughs) Thanks for having me on. This was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. This is Alex Bigler, and no, today is not Friday, but I am here to tell you that this Friday, I will be speaking with the one and only Eric Gardner on the Powers That Be podcast. Have a question you'd like to ask Eric? Go ahead and email it through to fritz at puck.news. Though, take it from me, he won't give legal advice, no matter how often I ask. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on Friday.